A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Ian Manuel. Ian is a truly inspiring soul. He's a spoken word poet whose message is the impossible is obtainable. When I first met Ian, he was on stage delivering some of his spoken word poetry. And when I talked to him afterwards, he shared with me something that I could see in his delivery. He said, God has given me the gift to compose words in ways that move people. He had plenty of time to practice cultivating that gift while he spent a 26-year prison sentence, 18 consecutive years in solitary confinement for a crime he committed at 13 years old. He received life in prison without the possibility of parole. We talk about the crime that landed him there, how he confronted his victim and why, what she said and did and continues to do. Subsequent to that, Starbucks actually made a video about this as part of its Upstanders series. So you can see it online. It's about a seven-minute story. It's very remarkable. In his life, his message is really touching message of forgiveness, courage, responsibility. The final thing here, and we talk about this briefly toward the end, but it's a theme I think that runs throughout, is this idea that our traditional justice system is oriented toward punishment, where a restorative justice system is or would be oriented toward healing. That if you're not already familiar with the concept of restorative justice, that this interview opens your eyes and your mind to the possibility of something that would serve us as a society in a far greater way than what we're currently doing. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ian Manuel. Ian, please tell me, what's life about? Uh, to me, life is about uh, paying your karmatic debts. You, we're here to learn. And we're here to teach. We're here to grow. Um, and some of us are born with, you know, with greater purposes, I believe, than others. Some of us, I learned from the, the book, uh, The Seed of the Soul by Gary Zukav, that some of, some souls take on more responsibilities than others uh, before they uh, it's like you they entered into a sacred agreement with the universe before they were even born. And um, I look at, you know, my life and I like to think that the way I'm the way I'm driven in the things that I've been through, that maybe I my soul took on a lot more responsibility before I was born. Yeah, I suspect knowing a little bit about your life story, <laughs> that that's very well true. Mm -hmm. um, when people ask you who you are and what you do. How do you typically answer that? Uh, I, I typically answer that in, in a couple ways. I, I say that each of us were born with a gift and that my gift is to compose words in ways that move people. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's the gist of my answer. Another way I answer it is just saying that, uh, 
you know, I use my imagination uh, to will things into existence. Give me an example of that. Uh, great, great question. Uh, I would be jumping ahead into the story. Well, I'll just I'll say this. Uh, I was in solitary confinement and I was listening to Michael Jordan, who I was a fan of. I, uh, Michael Jordan was one of the two people I always wanted to be like uh, as, a, as a little kid. Who was who the other? Michael Jackson. Oh, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. OK. Yeah. There was no in between for me. And uh, I just remember him hitting that last shot. Uh, I was listening to it on a tr- small transistor radio that I had in solitary confinement that yeah. I shouldn't have had. Yeah, I, my understanding <laughs> is those aren't allowed in solitary. Uh, no, they're not. How did you get the transistor radio? Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, you know, uh, transistor radios, uh, the one I had cost like 40 to 60 stamps. And inmates from uh, the population who served the food would come back there with contraband radios mm. uh, to sell to certain inmates who had that amount of stamps to to pay uh, for it. And um, I was just listening to that game, and I just, I was so happy because if you remember that year, it was one of the only times that the Bulls were, were not the favorite to win it all. Uh, Utah had just swept the Lakers in four games um, that year. And um, the Chicago Bulls were coming off a seven-game tough series against the Indiana Pacers. And everyone had picked, particularly Sports Illustrated, had picked uh, the Utah Jazz to beat Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls and become NBA champions, particularly being the year before that Michael Jordan and the Bulls had beaten them. Utah was better that year. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of painful memories. For me, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. With, I know you the son of, 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 of the great Larry Miller. But just to answer your question and how will things into existence, you know, Michael Jordan hit that shot and I felt the pleasure of it. But I also felt the agony that I was in solitary confinement celebrating this Bulls win. Mm. And yet I was like, someday I'm going to be free, man. Someday I'm, this isn't going to be my life forever. And here I am today on a podcast with Larry Miller's son. And I'm going to stand in that same spot where Michael Jordan hit that shot that shows you can will things into existence. Yeah, that's amazing. So this experience of being in solitary confinement, I want to talk about that. Tell me, how did you end up there? Great question. So the way uh, the Department of Correction is set up, you can be placed in solitary confinement for uh, anything from walking on the grass to uh, talking back to the officers to having uh, someone lie and plant, plant a knife in your locker or anything. Well, with me, I was, I was I like to say that I was given all the responsibilities of an adult at 13 to 14 because I was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole as a 13 year old child. OK, wait. So sentenced to life as a 13 year old without the possibility of parole. Yes. How does that happen? Uh, it happens when you have a state that's more uh, in tune with punishing children than rehabilitating them. It happens when you have a legislation in place that says a child of any age indicted for a life or death felony shall be treated in every respect as if he were an adult. Um, it happens when you have people in, in, in on the bench 
who are who don't have compassion and want to treat you like a grown man. But what I found when I was in prison, I was a child. I was a I was a child in one instance, but a man in another. And a perfect example of that is when I went to the when I went to the canteen to buy a pack of cigarettes. Not that I smoke. I've never smoked cigarettes. Uh, I don't do drugs. I don't drink alcohol. But cigarettes is a different type of currency inside a prison. And so I needed cigarettes to have my laundry folded a certain way, to have my uh, 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 my uh, laundry, my blues pressed in case I got a visit uh, or just just to have different privileges. Well, when I went to the canteen window to purchase a pack of cigarettes, the canteen operator would tell me uh, the computer says, don't try it like that. I'm like, what you mean? The computer says, don't try it like that. Son, you got to be 21 or 18 years old to buy a pack of cigarettes. So you're telling me I was old enough to be sent to this adult prison, but I'm not old enough to buy a pack of cigarettes at this adult prison. That's crazy. Yeah, I I totally understand. And and in this case, we're talking about the state of Florida. Yes. But if we're honest, there's a lot of states that are oriented that way currently. Right. It's just a lot of states oriented this that this way currently. A lot of a lot of states' laws hasn't changed. But to speak on how I specifically we got got placed in solitary confinement, I was doing the normal everyday things that kids would do if they were home and would have been placed and grounded for, like go to your room. Yeah. Instead, being a 14-year-old child, I was sent to my cell for, it started out with 30-day confinement here, 15 days here, 60 days confinement there. And what happens is if you go to confinement enough for walking on the grass, talking back to the officer, or just uh, being at an unauthorized area, being in another dorm. Kids are always places they're not supposed to be. If you get enough of those, they call, they consider you a management problem and they place you in long-term solitary confinement. And I was placed in long-term solitary confinement at, at the age of 15 years old. And uh, if you want me to you know, speak on how, you know, the, the way that is set up, I, I can. Yeah. I mean, first of all, as I hear you share your story, um, I'm really just stunned, you know, and I'm sure people listening are like, okay, wait, who is this guy? How did he end up in prison? What was solitary confinement like? You know, I'm sure there's a lot of questions, but let's go back for a moment to the beginning of how did you, as a 13 year old, get this life sentence? Like what happened for you to end up in that way? Great question. Great question. And I appreciate it. So I was born in a place called Central Park Village in Tampa, Florida. Uh, Central Park Village is a lot different than the Central Park that you and many of your audience members might 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 be uh, familiar with. There was no rosy trees or s- squirrels. If there was any squirrels, uh, they probably had to dodge, do- dodge bullets. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, Central Park was where I grew up and it was a very violent, dangerous neighborhood. And it's what I grew up around. And, you know, sometimes you become what you, you what you are surrounded with. Now, in my case, I I had a loving grandmother by the name of Linda Johnson who gave me anything I wanted. You know, she she was so caring and considerate because she didn't raise her own child. Mm. Um, and she wanted to kind of give me the love that she didn't give her child. My mom, um, my mom, Peggy, she uh, went to prison for shooting a woman herself went right soon as I was born. Wow. So, I, yeah, I was separated from my mama basically at birth. She went to prison with a three-year 
this is important with a three-year prison sentence so she gets a three-year prison sentence for shooting someone a woman a woman uh-huh for the 32 uh caliber pistol and my i'm basically raised those three years by my grandmother and while being raised by my grandmother i end up uh my mother gets out of prison and comes back and she moves to central park too so now i'm passed back and forth between my mom and my grandmother my mom my grandmother and i started going to catholic school i started going to catholic school in first grade it's a private school um second grade and third grade but something happened in in catholic school uh that i'll never forget actually two things i want to share that happened in catholic school that kind of let me know what I, I now I look back on it, what I felt like I was born to do. Um, one thing that happened was we were asked to draw. We was asked to draw something. And I, uh, I just distinctively remember the art teacher asking us to draw something. And I ended up drawing. Uh, I, it was a squirrel on the wall. And she told us to draw what we saw. And I drew this squirrel. And she was going around the different kids' table, stopping at their desk saying, oh, more warm. What a great you did a good job. Look at the eyes. Oh, Candace, look at the way you got the tail. You captured it pretty well. But she stopped at my desk and she looked at the squirrel at the top of the, uh, the on the ceiling on the wall and then looked back down at my paper. And it was exactly identical to what was on that wall. She couldn't believe our eyes. And I just remember her exclamation of how she picked up the piece of paper and showed it to the entire classroom. My God, class, look what Ian did, you know, and I was filled with a a feeling of fulfillment. Like, Mm. this is what makes me feel good. I want more of this. Yeah. How old were you at that time? I was in the second grade, so I was like six or seven. Okay. And the other thing I remember for second grade quickly is that um, they were passing out awards. Mm. And um, I was in the pews with my, it was the end of the school year. And I was in the pews with my mom and her mom, my mom's friend. And I, I was antsy. I've always been very hyper, very impatient, always getting up. You could tell from your class yesterday. <laughs> and, and, and they finally called my name. And Miss Fort, my second grade teacher, said, and for reading and writing, Ian Manuel. And I went up to the front, front of the auditorium. I got my awards. And I came back and I sat down on the bench. And my mom's friend, Ms. Linda Wright, said, Ian, let me see those certificates. And I turned around and I passed them to her. And she said, reading and writing, that's all you need in this world. And you could be anything you want. I never forgot that. And I told Random House that story and before I got signed. And it's one of the things I believe led to me being signed by the biggest publishing company in America. That's beautiful. That's yeah. really beautiful. Why did your mom shoot that woman? Um, I I was a little boy at the time, so I can't answer it. What I was told, though, because that's a great question. I, what I was told was that uh, the lady next door had told my uh, mom and son, her son, my older brother, Sean, to stay out of her yard. She, Paulette wanted my brother to stop running in her yard. There was no picket fence to separate the yards. This is the housing projects. Uh, and at the time, they we were staying in a, a housing project called Robles Park. Um, anyway, Sean 
deliberately, I was told, went in the lady's yard again and Paulette hit Sean and my mom, who I guess only dealt with things through anger, shot Paulette for hitting her son. Wow. Well, at the risk of being flippant, it sounds like that might run in the family. <laughs> so mm-hmm. not the anger thing. Obviously, you I mean, anybody who spent time around you, I think, feels your peaceful, I think, a very peaceful spirit, but a very strong spirit. Yes. But this tendency, perhaps, to do things impulsively, at least at some time in your life. Yes. I mean, even just flying out here uh, at a, at a flop, flip of a dime, uh, uh, I, I like to say, um, don't let fear freeze you. Mm. You know, courage is acting in the face of fear. And so uh, I'm not as impulsive as I used to be. I used to be impulsive about nearly everything because I wanted that high, that high of just doing something and not being bored. But I will say that my impulsivity did probably lead lead to, uh, you know, my crime that night. Impulsivity combined with the peer pressure of four older teenagers, you know, com- you know, convincing me to have the gun to go downtown looking for someone to rob and someone, you know, to shoot uh, well, not to shoot someone to take money from. And uh, July 27th, 1990 was when my crime happened. I was 13 years old. So walk us through. Uh, it's difficult to uh, reminisce about. But uh, what makes it difficult? Well, the. I, I went through a lot of therapy about it. I uh, went through a lot of therapy. I went through a lot of uh, healing with me and the victim. Uh, and just knowing that's, that's not who I, who I was raised to be as a person. So although I was raised in that environment, neither my mom nor my grandmother raised me to be that way. Mm-hmm. You know, they instilled in me uh, values of Ian. Like, for instance, my mom, even though she had a, very strange way of loving me. Mm -hmm. She said one thing to me over and over again that I held on to that kept my sanity in some of the toughest conditions. She used to grab me periodically throughout the years and the weeks. And she say, Ian, baby, you're brilliant. No matter what, don't never let them take your mind. Mm -hmm. And for her to tell me that, I mean, you know, I used to hold on to that in the deepest recesses of solitary confinement when I was stuck in an abyss when everyone had died and I had no support and I was being starved and uh, starved not only physically by the correctional officers who refused to feed me, but starved of love by humanity. You know, when when you don't have a family, uh, no one's coming to see you. You know, I lost my entire family uh, during my incarceration. And, and so you you need something to hold on to. Uh, and I held on to that statement that had I lost my sanity, had I went crazy, then I would I would lose. I would let mom down. I would let myself down because I would have nothing else to defend myself against the evil of that was surrounding me by the correctional officers. So your brother, Sean, that you just told us a story about, he passed away while you were incarcerated. Yes, sir which you haven't yet mentioned this, but a total serve, total time served of 26 years. Yes. Right. Total time in solitary of 18 years. Yes. 18 consecutive years. That's crazy. Right. So, and this thing about the correctional officers who would starve you mm-hmm. for how long, what reason? Well, people, we, 
I don't, I'm not going to say all of us, but humans have this tendency to want to uh, break something <laughs> uh, 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 or just mold it in the fashion that we want it molded in. We do it in our relationships with our wives. We do it. We do it with our children. Like we want them to be how we want them to be. Right. And we don't make any room or allowances for them being who they are, their own personality. I have a strong personality. So I, I'm going to stand out what, no matter what room I walk in. So here you got these correctional officers trying to make me be who they want me to be. Like, man, you're, I, you know how many times they got, I got told, Ian, you're just an inmate. Ian, you're not special. Ian, you, you're just, we're going to get you, you're going to be treated just like everyone else. And when I resisted that, I would be gassed with high power military style mace. I would be starved. I would be injected with psychotropic meds that I didn't need. Haldol, Zyprexa, Prolixin. These are things you give to people who are in, who are, have very serious mental disorders. Mm-hmm. Not someone like me who's just just resisting being broken. Give me an example of how you would resist. Oh, uh, let me see. Let me see. Let me give you an example of how I would resist. Ian, we want to cut your hair. Uh, and you're not supposed to have a, uh, I don't know where you got that fade from, but you're not supposed to have a fade. I'm like, well, I transferred to this institution with this fade. Well, we want to cut it and make it in, you're not supposed to have a fade. You're not supposed to have a bald head. We want you looking just like everyone else. Uh, I don't want to look like just like everyone else. God made me an individual, mm. you know, so then they would want to hold you down and cut your hair and make you look just like everyone else. I think that's a, a, a prime, a, a prime example, or I would resist through. I, I'm a prolific writer and they would hate someone who was successful at writing grievances. And they would literally tell me, Ian, stop writing grievances. Okay, if you won't stop writing grievances for yourself, stop helping these other inmates write their grievances. We're not, if we're not messing with you, stay out of our business. Stay mm-hmm. out. They would literally tell me to stay out of their business. And, and it just got to the point where they kind of, <laughs> they put me in a, a form of solitary where it was only like seven of us on a wing where uh, I couldn't help that many people. We were separated from the, the rest of the people of, of the population. So you'd write grievances, meaning there's some formal process by which prisoners can get a message out to a larger yeah. world that by all, by all rights, the, the correctional officers should adhere to and honor. Right. But they don't like right. that being out. Right. So what's okay. Yeah. There's so much, <laughs> there's so much, so yeah. much I want to know. Um, what was the biggest thing you learned? Oh, man. I think the biggest thing I learned in in prison for me that that I, it goes back to something that uh, Albert Einstein taught, that imagination is more important than knowledge. You got these people out here in society who go to pay all this good money to, to go to these colleges and different universities. I went to a 26-year university. And during that, during that time, I spent 18 consecutive years in solitary and I used my imagination so much and stretched it and bit it into all different type of ways to the point where, let me tell you a quick story, what I mean by the imagination. I went, I walked up to this window in my cell one day and I saw a wasp in the window 
and then it was a grate over my window blocking me from being able to just find to get this dead wasp out of this window. So I rolled up a piece of toilet paper. I found a a a, a piece of broom to try to to get the, but I couldn't get the the wasp out of this window. And and, and, I, and it's a dead wasp. It's a dead wasp. It's a dead wasp. But I'm dri- I'm driven. Isn't there a toilet? You just put it down the toilet. Right, but I can't touch it. I, there's a oh grate. because the grate is between you and the wasp. It's between I, me and okay. the wasp. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give it a proper burial. Um. Because I didn't think anything just deserved to be left in solitary confinement, not even a dead wasp. And so what I did after becoming frustrated, I did what I always do to free myself or free something. I sat down and wrote a poem called The Wasp in the Window. And I was able to use that poem to free that wasp because that same poem uh, was uh, the School of Visual Arts in New York City spent a semester studying my poetry while I was in solitary confinement. So I was able to free that wasp because now people uh, who had never seen that wasp before know about it. You know, that's so that, beautiful. So that's a way that I, I just feel like one thing I learned is that imagination is more important than knowledge. Forget what you learn, yeah. but don't forget what you feel, what mm. you dream of. Mm. How did you? How did you preserve the strength of your spirit? How did you let them not break your spirit? That's a that's a great question, man. I uh, I just didn't want to. I, I I turned to stories in the Bible for inspiration. Stories like Samson. Hmm. Uh, I you know how you know he lost his eyes, but he just he just held on. The longer you held on, and his hair grew back, they forgot about that part. <laughs> um, and even with if you if you think I had one I had one human being that I could look to that had been through what I had been through that I could turn to and say okay this is my pinnacle I know I can go at least twenty seven years and eighteen years in solitary because I know another human being that did it now if I get I don't know if I can go past that but I can get at least to that. And that human being was Nelson Mandela. He served 26 years in prison and 18 years in solitary confinement. I served 26 years in prison and 18 years in solitary confinement. I was right there on the cusp of what he was on. Yeah, that's not a record I want to break. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's go back. I got three things I want to, at least three things I want to cover. One, I want to learn about was it a night? I want to learn about that night. Yeah. I want to learn about that. I want to hear about, and, and I can come back to these, but I, you let you go where you want to go right now. So that night, your book, who you wrote it for and what you want it to do or how you want the world to be different. There was one more, but those are, those are the, those are the two. Would, which one of those would you like to explore? I like to go with the, the most difficult one. And the one, the most difficult one for me is that night. Um, you know, you know, I, I would just say this. I was I was sitting on the porch with my uh girl girl on again, off again, whatever you puppy love girlfriend, and I was trying to get her to go upstairs with me. This At, this way back in twenty was this nineteen ninety? Yes, this was nineteen ninety. Okay. I was thirteen, she was 
like 12, 13 or whatever. And she just wouldn't go uh, upstairs with me for whatever reason. You'll find out more in the book. I don't want to give too much away right sure. there. Um, but I will say that uh, I got approached by some older boys to go downtown and do a robbery. And my frustration. Some kids go skateboarding. Some kids go skateboarding. And I will say that I did have the opportunity to go to the game room uh, while I was sitting on that porch. But I turned the guy down earlier. To go play like video games or air hockey or something? Right. So you could have done that. I could have done that at first. But I was, I told, I turned the guy down and said, I'm just chilling with my girl tonight, man. Um, But I just got so frustrated uh, after staying on this porch for an hour and seeing she wasn't changing her mind that when the bad guys came along and offered me to go downtown, I was like, you know what? Sure. Nothing's going on here. I, I, I. That's a decision that I regret. I mean, I sat on my porch. I mean, I sat in my in my cell many, many years thinking, what if I'd have just stayed on that porch? Mm-hmm. What if I would have just stayed on that porch with peaches instead of going downtown? And my life would have looked so much different. But I always felt like there was a purpose. There was a reason uh, that I left that porch. I mean, I was the only one arrested. For this crime it was four of us but anyway we go downtown they keep trying to con- they keep trying to convince me to r- rob this person rob that person and i'm like no no i don't feel comfortable and um what they do it <laughs> I, i'm the youngest i'm the youngest and then supposedly the most courageous oh yeah you know uh I've, that's something i've always been known for mm. my heart uh whether it's the courage to jump on a plane and fly to a complete stranger's house yeah. or the, 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 the heart to just be compassionate and give uh, the heart to uh, meet this white kid in the County jail who, whose family's middle-class and everybody wants to try to extort and pick on. And I just take him under my wing. Like I got you guy named William Bartfield, just things like that. I just always had a, a, a good heart. Uh, but anyway, we go downtown and we, you know, jumping ahead in the story, just we, I get pressured to the next person in. We've been down here at this for like a few hours and we haven't robbed anybody because I'm the one with the gun and I keep telling them, no, 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 it doesn't. This is too wide open. This is, it's too many people, too many witnesses. Where'd you get the gun? Uh, the oldest guy had the gun. The guy who was 18, the guy was the oldest guy who had the gun he gave it to my friend. I didn't even know the oldest guy. The oldest guy was 18. The second oldest was 16. The fourth, third oldest was 14. And the youngest was Ian. What was it? It was a 38? This was, was a 32. A 32. The same kind of gun my mom had. Oh, man. History repeats itself. History repeats itself in that case. Um, I go downtown. I end up, uh, the oldest guy asking, end up asking the lady for uh, and the man, he, she was with a, she was with the guys. Well, asked him for a change for, I think, a twenty dollar bill. And I thought I heard him said that they had change. And I, you know, I pulled out the gun, man. And I just, I sh- she screamed as soon as she saw the gun. And my reaction: scream, fire, boom. And then I just went to firing, man. You know. And by the grace of God, like out of the. Three, four shots by the grace of God. I can't even tell you when I hit her because no one fell down. As a kid, 
you see on TV when someone gets shot, they always fall. Yeah. And so no one fell. I didn't even know anyone had got shot. Uh, I was arrested three days later. Uh, I got arrested because I was in a stolen car and joyriding, you know, end up being pressured, uh, ask some more questions. And I end up, I, this thing was weighing heavy on my heart. Once I found out that lady had been shot, I end up confessing to a cop in the back of a police car in the parking lot of the juvenile detention center. Uh, I was, you know, taken back downtown to talk to some detectives. Uh, my confession was coerced out of me after that, though, because they st- they did all type of things that they shouldn't have done. Even though I was guilty, it's still ways you're supposed to treat a child. You're supposed to, you're supposed to get their parents. You're not supposed to stop at Popeye's and get some chicken and biscuits, and being that the kid hasn't ate in eight hours, and give them food as as and put them on tape to talk to them and uh, hold them and deny them sleep. All that I went through. I mean, that doesn't change what I did, but I was just watching the Netflix series uh, uh, When They See Us, and I was looking at that case of the Central Park Five and what they went through, and I'm looking at myself. It was very difficult to watch that because some of that had happened to me. Well, fast forward, uh, I'll never forget, you know, my lawyer came to me after my motion to suppress uh, my confession because he just he tried to suppress my uh, confession because that's the only evidence they had against me. There was no murder weapon. There was no nobody identified me. That was just my statement. And once we the judge denied the motion to suppress, he came to me. He told me to plead guilty that he had worked it out with the judge that he was going to give me 15 years. And I don't know about you, but listening to someone tell you as a 13 year old child that you will only receive 15 years. That in of itself sounds like a life sentence to a 13 year old child. Sure. I told him, no, I don't want to go to prison at all. He said, well, he worked on me for 10, 15 minutes leaning over the side of the jury box because they separate the juveniles from the adults. And so he had me, I was in a jury box sitting on the, at the end. He went, hopped over there to my mom. He had recently torn his Achilles, hopped over there to my mom, talked to her for a little bit. Came, my mom came to the side of the jury box and said, Ian, listen to your lawyer, baby. I don't want you to get life. Please just plead guilty. Do it for me. And I sat there and I thought, my mom has experience in the criminal justice system. Uh, I thought about all the times my mom had told me to do something and I did the opposite. And I reaped the consequences of doing what I wanted versus what she said. And I just thought that I was doing the right thing. Well, she went to her grave regretting that decision because uh, a couple months later on April 11th, 1991, uh, Judge Manuel Menendez looked down at me and said, Mr. Manuel, there was a statement made earlier today in this courtroom about giving you a second chances. But for sometimes there are no second chances. So I sentence you to the rest of your natural life and the Florida Department of Corrections. And that sentence is concurrent. And I sentence you to life probation. And that sentence is being imposed in case the Florida Department of Corrections should, for whatever reason, ever release you. Uh, This court is adjourned. And so I was sent to prison as a I had just turned 14. My birthday is March 29th. I was sentenced April 11th, so I had just turned 14. I had a fresh life sentence, 
and I was, you know, scheduled to die in prison. It's not a life sentence. It's a death sentence. And one of the first things I did once I got to prison in 1991, I had to clear my conscience. And you can see this in the Starbucks documentary, uh, uh, befriending the shooter. I, um, I was going through my, my, my legal work and I found the, 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 the victim slash now friend, Debbie Bakeries. That's one thing people don't understand. Once all these cases, the case is final, the, 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 the defendant gets the victim's phone number and, I, and all of that in the police report. But there's no need to really be, I, I wouldn't say scared because the guy's in prison trying to get out. You're trying to fight for your freedom, hoping like, how did I, this ever happen? Well, I did something I've always, back to imagination, I've always used my imagination. I, I still, I've, you got to have a childlike imagination. So I said, you know what? I'm going to call this lady. I'm going to call this lady. So I went out to the compound and I never forget picking up the phone. Back then we had live operators. Uh, you press zero and, and the operator comes on and I said, uh, I have a collect call. And I, I remember wanting to lie and pretend again, childlike imagination, 14 years old, pretend like I was the detective that was working the case um, or the officer, who, the arresting officer. But then I just remember saying that, Ian, if you want this to work right, if you want this, to, that and then she want, really wants to talk to you, just got to be yourself. You just got to be yourself. And so I, I told the operator, collect call from Ian to Debbie. The operator dialed the number. A lady on the other end picked up. The lady said, can you ask him his last name? Now I had to say something again. So I'm put on the spot again. All Everything I'm doing, it's like it takes imagination and it takes courage because I was scared to death. And I said, yeah, I, I can tell her my last name is Manuel. And Debbie said, yes, I accept. I accept. And I just remember just trying to blurt out something before she hung up. I was like, Debbie, uh, I like, I, it was Christmas. It was Christmas, 1991. I said, uh, I like to just, I'm calling just to wish you and your family, uh, a Merry Christmas and to apologize for shooting you, shooting you in the face last year. And she acted in her next, the next thing she said was she asked me a question. No 14 year old should ever have to answer. She said, Ian, why did you shoot me? And my reply and my truth was it all happened so fast and it did. Uh, we talked. I asked, could I call back? She said, yes. We talked again. Another 15 minutes. I asked, could I do the one thing I knew that separated me from other people? I asked, could I write her? She said, yes. And that's how our correspondence started. And we ended up writing each other for a few years. She had a lot of pressure from her husband, understandably so, and family members to let him die in prison. Let him rot. Why are you communicating with this animal? He tried to kill you. She'd tell me these things. 
And I, I can understand if you don't know my heart, if you don't know a person's heart, you know, uh, people, they see the surface. People have a sense of the surface and not the depth that comes from a person. And uh, she stuck to her guns. And now, now she tells me I get texts or emails or phone conversation. And you make me so proud because now everyone has to eat those words. That's amazing. Why do you think she was willing to talk to you? And why do you think she was willing to continue her correspondence and conversations with you despite the people in her life who were telling her not to? Well, in her own words, uh, she uh, <laughs> she said she had answered that initial phone call from morbid curiosity. That was a that was her first uh, say she answered the first call from more curiosity. But she said she continued the conversation once she seen how well I wrote. She said my sentence structure and the paragraphs and and the way I uh, had such a command of the English language at such a young age, she thought someone was writing my letters for me. Wow. And so once she discovered my intellect, she just wanted to continue to be a part of that and, and help nurture it. That's beautiful. Well, and I'm so moved by her willingness to forgive you mm-hmm. for this. How long did it take you to forgive yourself and how did you do it? Uh, well, I'm still processing that uh, because, you know, forgiving, forgiving yourself. I have to forgive myself for a lot of things because I, I, I don't just have to forgive myself for shooting her. I have to forgive myself for us. Sending my help and sending my mom to an early grave, I believe. I have to forgive myself for uh, throwing away my entire adolescence. I have to forgive myself for, you know, letting, you know, letting myself down. I, I mean, there's an old saying, it's never too late to become what you might have been. Um, and I'm probably on the way to that right now. But I just wanted, as a child, I wanted to be the next Michael Jordan. I was so good at basketball, even though I, as you can see, I've never grown higher than five, nine. They used to call me baby Jordan on the court. Uh, and I, I had these dreams of just being a great NBA player, but I grew instead. I grew up in solitary confinement, listening to the finals on a transistor radio. Uh, the last championship I seen was game, like game one of the 1992 Portland Trailblazers, Chicago Bulls uh, finals before I went to solitary confinement. You know, that's how long I was in solitary uh, before I was released in 2010. So I don't know. I'm still in the process of forgiving myself. Every day is a, a new thing. But I will say that Debbie forgiving me was a huge burden lift. It was a huge burden lift. It makes me makes forgiving myself a whole lot easier. Yeah, it, it's inspiring. And people can learn about that both through this video that Starbucks produced as part of their Upstander series. Yes, yes. Which is pretty awesome and we'll link to in the show notes. And then also Brian Stevenson yes. who wrote about this in Just Just Mercy. Just Mercy, yes. And Just Mercy is coming out as a movie in January of next year. I don't know if I'll be featured in it, but I know Just Mercy is being made into a movie and Michael... Uh, Michael B. Jordan is playing Brian Stevenson. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, okay, let's, let's turn now to the conversation about your book. Will you please describe your book? 
tell me who you wrote it for and how you want the world to be different because of it. Well, uh, I wrote my, I'm in the process of writing my book. Uh, you know, my book is called my time's going to come. And I want, I wrote, I'm writing this book for the hopeless. I'm writing this book for the people who seeking fulfillment, who seem stuck, who believe that there's more to life and that they're not actually able to access it yet. Who, who I want to show people that modern day miracles happen, that they didn't stop happening in the Christ days, you know, because me sitting here, uh, just giving you this interview with a sound mind, great health and uh, able to articulate myself is nothing short of a modern day miracle. Um, so that's who I'm writing it for. The title of the book is my time's going to come. And I like to preface, you know, in, in the title with a poem. Um, I wrote this poem after I had been resentenced to, uh, 65 years after the U S Supreme court overturned my life sentences. And I went back to Tampa for resentencing. I thought I was going home, but instead I was, sentence resentenced to 65 years and i'm not an anomaly uh state courts all over the united states are doing they're trying to get as close to life as possible with a trick a trick 20 a catch 22 like okay the supreme court says we can't give them life but they didn't say we couldn't give them 200 years so they're just restructuring the sentences in a way where it still equals a life sentence through a term of year sentence and so i went back up the uh role uh rolled in prison, very depressed. And I wrote this poem and it says, I promise you the brunt of my oppression has a purpose. And this same person that you persecute will one day be worshiped. Though I stand before you bad chested and shirtless with my soul and emotions naked, just wanting to be nurtured. Yeah, despite the desperation, desertion, and hurting, my time gonna come. Though I compose this poem not knowing if I'll ever be able to perform it in an auditorium, I do it with the faith of a poet that believes he was born to do it. Like an acorn caught up in a storm, flung from the branch where it was born. You can only hold me back for so long. My time going to come. Despite the difficulties and disappointments, my determination remains undaunted. Though the waters of my tomorrows are deep and uncharted, the buoyance of my character will float unwavering towards them like a song written but unrecorded. My time going to come. Though you wrap me in chains and sprayed me with chemical flames and did all of the things you did to add to my pain, my circumstances will change. I believe this with the depths of my being that as long as this world continues to spin, it cannot end until it's been enjoyed by end. Remember this day because things won't always be this way. My time going to come. My time going to come.
against all conceivable odds, my time gonna come. And so I wrote that poem when my life was at its lowest. And that's another way I, through my imagination, wheel things into existence. You know? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Hopefully your audience is uh like it like like it as well. Um and the, the third part of the question was what? So how do you want the world to be different because of it? Oh my god, that is I want I want I want I want people to take a harder look at who we put in office that structure these laws. Uh I want I want the homeless person or the the person in Syria that's being bombed and think thinking that there's no no one cares about them that that there's no hope to look at my situation and see how I was in a situation so be, beyond anyone I was in a situation where no one could change my situation but God or uh, uh, the the universe whatever faith you believe that the power I was I had a natural life sentence buried alive every immediate family member dead uh no lawyer no money but yet i had the hope and the willpower not to kill myself not to give up hope and change so i w- i want to write this book for the hopeless the voiceless but even the, the executives even the executives the, the have them take a deeper look at them themselves and be like if this guy Ian didn't give up and he had something, what is it within me? What is my purpose here? What what is my purpose on earth? And have them just do a self-examination and, and figure out how can they use what they currently have to serve others. That's, that's spiritual work right there. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I know your work has already touched many lives. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing this book come out and uh, potentially hosting a launch party here in Utah. <laughs> yes, sir. Maybe one of many across the country and maybe even around the world as we get this message out and this giving a voice to the voiceless and hope to the hopeless. One, one last thing I'd like to add. The reentry process is extremely difficult. Uh, I had a lot of help uh, when I got out of prison. If I didn't have the Equal Justice Initiative helping me, uh, I wouldn't be able to focus on my talent because I would be in survival mode. You know, I wouldn't be having the ability to focus on working on a book with Random House. So I would ask, you know, if your listeners are philanthropists and interested in helping someone, there's finally a, a, a reentry program in Florida where I it's it's a small one, but it just started. It's by the social worker who Brian Stevenson hired to come see me. She helped create it with a, 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 a pastor in, uh, in Florida. It's called Joseph's House. And Brian Stevenson hired this social worker named Mariah Morrison, whose dad lives in Utah. Uh, yeah. And she is a wonderful lady. She copied the entire GED book, sent it to me a chapter at a time. So people might wonder, OK, Ian, you're smart, but how did you get an education? Well, this lady took the time to tediously copy the entire GD book, send it to me a chapter at a time and sent it back to, and let me know what I needed to correct. So once I was out of confinement, because you can't get an education in solitary, that I would finally be able to take 
the GED test. I took the GED test in 2013 and passed the first time. And it was greatly part due to this lady taking the time out to nurture me. Congrats on that. You're welcome. I mean, that's one thing with this that I think people might not think of, but all the things you missed out on that a normal learning to drive a car, going to prom, right? you know, right. Um, this, this kind of thing, getting your own apartment. I mean, it's, I imagine in some ways you must've felt like when you watch those sci-fi movies and somebody's in cryogenic sleep uh-huh. and, and then time passes and then you arrive and it's like, whoa, what's been the hardest thing for you as you've resumed life or, or began life on the um, outside? I think just female relationships. Um, I'm, uh, I'm very good. Guys used to pay me to write their girlfriend's poetry. And so I'm very in tune with the, the female way of thinking. Mm-hmm. But uh, one thing that gets in the way is uh, my fast thought process. So I'm already in the mind state of let's from A to Z. And the female is more slow. Let me get to know you. What do you mean by A to Z? Because some people could say, <laughs> let's get in bed. But you mean like, let's have a family. Let's move in together. What? Uh, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, just probably get get in bed. Because after 26 years of being denied access to just just companionship, you know, that's something that I really wanted bad. And getting out in society, people got this new word called thirsty. I wasn't thirsty. I was dehydrated. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can barely imagine. And, and that thing you said about thinking you were going to, you were going to go home and instead 65 year sentence. I mean, I'm disappointed when I get to the airport and my flight is delayed, right? You know, or they don't have my meal or something. I can barely imagine. And it was an additional five years after that, before I finally got out. So it was meant to be, but I'm glad it, you know, sometimes God does things in his timing and I look back on my life and I promise you I wouldn't change a thing. Nothing. I wouldn't change a thing. That's amazing. Yeah. uh, The lady I shot is my friend now. Uh, You know, she she started a wonderful career first in bodybuilding. She accredits me with that. Uh, And then she now she's a real estate agent. And despite me losing all of my family, man, that's the most painful part. It's, it, it, it lets me know what the human spirit can endure and still continue to have hope and love and, uh, and perseverance. Hearing you say that reminds me of that saying that God's delays are not God's denials. Yes. Yes. All right. Amazing. Okay. So if you're, if you're good with it, I want to turn the conversation now to the enlightening lightning round and just ask you maybe 10 questions, eight or nine questions, Okay. short, short form. You can answer as long as you want, but I'll keep my question short. Okay. Okay. And then I want to ask a little bit about your creative process. Okay. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Let's, let's try to get through it. Okay. Here we go. Okay. First question, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Mm -hmm. Life is like a, a beautiful rose blooming slowly, (laughs) slowly. (laughs) Number two. What's something at which you wish you were better? Math. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? The impossible is obtainable. Number four, what book or books other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Gary Zukav, The Seat of the Soul. 
Number five, when you travel, what's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? A song called Life in Favor by John P. Key. I look at it. I listen to it during every turbulence shake or take off a landing. Life in Favor. All right. Next question. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Uh, what have I stopped doing or started doing? Ah, uh, that's a difficult one because I don't drink. I don't do alcohol and I don't do marijuana. What do I, what have I stopped doing? Um, I started taking a different medication. I started taking a different medication to help me, you know, be more calm and serene. And it sounds like you've also started doing at least a little bit of yoga with Sean. Yes, yes. Me and, y- me and Sean Cohen do uh, yoga retreats once a year. Uh, we have one coming up in October. And uh, she's, I believe the universe, I believe, so in Gary Zukav's book, uh, The Seed of the Soul, it talks about you meeting people in a different lifetime and, you know, you having agreements to meet in this lifetime. I think Sean was one of those people because uh, my publisher just pointed this out to me, actually. And not because of her name, but that Sean and Ian means the exact same thing. God's gift. Wow. And we just, we have so much in common. So yeah, I do some yoga and through her yoga connections, she's like a, she has a lot of yoga connections through, uh, throughout the United States. So other women, once they know I know Sean, they, oh, you sure? I'll help you out with some yoga. So yeah, I do yoga at least, try to do it at least once a week. That's awesome. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American knew the pain that people go through in solitary confinement, that uh, people are treated. I remember doing the uh, the outcry of the Abu Ghraib uh, uh, prison that was be- occurring in Iraq. And I'm like, they're doing the same exact thing right here in the United States. Where's the outcry for us? So I just wish the American public knew what went on in its prison system. Mm. What's the most important thing you've ever learned about money? You need to manage it better. (laughs) (laughs) That could probably always be true, uh, no matter what, right? What's the most useful relationship advice you've ever heard and successfully applied? Relationship advice? Oh, man. That's so much, man. Relationship advice. I think that, uh, and I apply this a lot, to really listen to people. Don't just hear them. Listen to, and when I say listen, you, you have to use, and I'm, I'm making this part up. Don't listen, just listen with your ears. Listen with your eyes. Listen to what your energy feel, to what the other person is saying, because people will talk to you through all type of instances. Yeah. If people want to learn more from you, they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Uh, I would have them uh, reach out to me on um, my email. It's Ian Manuel, I-A-N-M-A-N-U-E-L 329 at gmail.com. Uh, we're currently in the process of trying to get a website up. And um, you can contact my publisher, Random House. Uh, and you can, or you can reach out to me on my Instagram page, which is at the diamond in the dirt. So that's T H E slash, I mean, underscore diamond underscore 
N underscore the underscore dirt. Okay. And Ian, one of the things that I've done in order to show a little bit of gratitude for you making time to share your experience and your wisdom with me and our listeners is I've gone on Kiva.org and I've made a $100 micro loan oh. to an entrepreneur in a developing country. Mm-hmm. So I just uh, want to say thank you for, for doing this. No, thank you for doing that. I mean, any undeveloped country that I can help support is, is something that I'm glad to do. Well, thank you. Okay, so I know we're just about at time here, but I, want to, I just want to wrap up our conversation by inquiring a little bit about your creative process. Yeah, uh, I, I'm happy to share. My creative process comes in very different ways. I think the number one way that I create is when I feel challenged, when I feel like uh, this person is doubting me. Like, you know, like I walk in the room and I'm because I'm black, because I'm a convicted felon, uh, you and I don't have those credentials of someone that might have went to a Juilliard or a Tish that you are. Uh, don't think I have what it takes to deliver. I love that. I love just, ooh, I love just like producing something that leaves you, just makes your jaw drop. Um, and so that's my, that's my number one way I create. But there's some also times where something to hit me. Like, wait till I send you a poem about uh, yesterday, someone in class talked about, spoke about that if your dreams were on fire, which one would you say? And I immediately felt that inspiration that only an artist gets when he knows he has heard something that he's going to make into something great. Uh, so sometimes it's just something I'll hear. And there's something I'll see. And yesterday was one of those moments. Wow. And then in terms of actually getting a poem created, mm-hmm. um, do you have any kind of a daily routine that you follow that you, you know, maybe make time in the morning or? So I write best in the morning. Uh, for whatever reason, my mind is fresh. Uh, I really coffee helps. Coffee helps do does something, stimulates the the neurons in my brain. And all I need is that one line, that one little line I'll play around with, man, uh that that will just trigger something. Like um I wrote one I wrote one last night after I was looking out at your uh on, I was on your porch. Uh I wrote this line last night and it's just, it's a pretty good line, so I'm going to share it. It says, uh, I'm, th- I'm thinking of doing my next interview at the Grand Canyon. When they ask, how did you go from solitary to being Ian Manuel? I'm going to tell them that's how God planned it. You know what I'm saying? Just something, <laughs> just something unique. I, I think in rhyme patterns. Like, that's the way my thought process works. And it's just, it's so natural to me now. I do it as natural as breathing. Yeah, I love that. So, before we began recording, we were having a conversation about youth and about when your book comes out and the possibility of having there be a tie to schools or other places in our communities. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in service of that original flow of conversation, as we bring this conversation to a close, I wonder if you'd be willing to bring us back to what we were talking about before we started recording. So our listeners maybe also have the benefit of, of that. Yeah. So in the book uh, vetting process, one of the things that you will experience is the various book companies telling you how, why you should sign with their company, what they will have to offer you. And, and in my process being that I, my crime occurred when I was a young child, uh, they were telling me how that they could help 
get my book on the common reads list. You know, these companies. What is that? The, the, common, the common reads is books that are recommended uh, to co incoming college students, freshmen, for them to read during a year and give uh, reports on, you know, during a semester. And so I just, uh, I was very interested in that because that's one part of the population. My story uh, for some some authors would be a dream um, because it's, it, it touches on so many different components of the justice system. You have the juvenile justice system. Uh, you have the solitary confinement system, justice system. Uh, you have the restorative justice system. Me and my victim forgiving me and me making that reaching out on that call. Uh, so there's so many different aspects of it. But I was particularly moved that that there's that doing a publishing process that the companies are actually thinking ahead on how to help youth uh, actually get books in their hands that actually move them. Because when I'm speaking to kids, I've had kids come up to me, which have led to other speaking engagements. I spoke at a uh, Ivy League prep school called Horace Mann in the Bronx. It's where a lot of rich people send their kids uh, to prepare them for Ivy League schools. And I just remember student after student coming up to me saying, Ian, wow, that was amazing. They always bring these PhD people here and we we sit in our seats so bored, man, but your poetry, you should turn your poetry into a rap, man. You, we, I was so engaged. When are you coming back? I hadn't even left yet. And it was asking me, when was I coming back? Encore, encore. Encore, <laughs> you know? Um, and so to hear these publishers have a plan in place to get these books to youth was something that I really appreciated. What can we do as ordinary citizens to help make sure that what's happened to you never happens again? Man, I would say, I would say support the arts. I was recently at a billionaire's house called, his name is Michael Norvogratz. And he said something that, uh, that I hadn't even thought about. And he said that, you know, in history, when things are, when you want to look at things to change, you know, the arts are uh, usually influence those changes. Uh, and I thought about that. And he said, so that's why me and my wife uh, want to, you know, be philanthropists and donate to arts that, you know, help with the social justice change. He says, it's my job. I follow numbers. He said, that's what I've done my whole career. And I'm studying the numbers on this thing, the social justice and the way the criminal justice system is ran. And it's showing me that it's not sustainable. Now, this is from a guy who's a numbers guy. I'm not a numbers guy. I'm a wordsmith. And so I'm people listen when he talk. And so and he's saying this and he's saying he wants to, you know, donate to us the art. So I would I would one of the number one things I would do is recommend that even ordinary people, if it's five dollars, it's ten dollars, is support organizations or support artists who are using their arts to transform the social, you know, the social justice climate. I'm currently uh, I, I currently was granted a grant by the uh, National Endowment of the Arts. I got 55,000. We went in trying to get uh we went in trying to get 80,000. Uh but we're trying to get the most that we can get to put on a play, a uh, show about, you know, my life incorporating kids that shows how the criminal justice system is ran to actually shock the conscience of the public to 
since they're not going to go to prison themselves to confront them with the ugliness of the actions of this prison system to make compel a change. Otherwise, that probably won't you know happen if you just sit around and do nothing. Yeah. Well, that and I think the causes and conditions that contribute to people even entering the, yes. the justice system. Yes, right? I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Amazing. Okay. What advice do you leave or inspiration do you leave our listeners with to help them complete and share their own creative projects in a way that will make a difference in the world? I leave them with this poem called Every Time I Breathe. Every time I breathe, I feel the need to justify my existence to take this moment that I'm living and enjoy every millisecond in it. My life, my struggles, not many can comprehend it. My desire for freedom burns like a sausage inside a skillet. Tomorrow isn't promised, so I'm thankful for this minute. Though in prison, merely existing, it's like my life has been suspended. But that means it's temporary because I haven't been expelled and I still got a chance as long as I can in and exhale every time I breathe. Every time I breathe, I'm thankful for the oxygen from the trees and little things like little bees that get overlooked until they sting. Every day I'm faced with obstacles that block the progress to my dreams. But the blockades only masquerades like costumes on Halloween. I've been through enough pain to make a sane man just scream. But instead, I take a deep breath and just breathe. Every time I breathe, the cosmos come out of my nostrils like particles of product coming out of your console. My soul is like a chihuahua you didn't include in your carpool. My lungs relax and collapse like a bottom sitting on the bar stool. Every time I breathe, every time I breathe, I become an intergalactic being stepping out of character like a chiropractor snapping peas. I prayed so many times. It's like I got arthritis in my knees, but I still get down and bow my head because I continue to believe. That as long as I can breathe, God's going to make a change. And my circumstances are the only chances for me to glorify his name. You don't know me, homie, but that's odds I've already overcame. So if praying works but hurts, then I can stand a little pain. I want to end this part by thanking God for bringing me to these heights. And I make a promise to always honor and cherish this breath of life every time I breathe every time I breathe every time I breathe thank you amazing hey I have an idea let's go stand where Jordan hit that shot I call that. I want to do that. All right. We're going to head to that arena and see where Jordan hit that shot over Brian Russell. It's I'm going to get over the soreness. But again, Ian, thank you so much for being being here, for accepting the invitation to come to Utah, be a part of the School for Good Living Coach training program, stay in my home, share this interview. I'm so looking forward to your book coming out. I want to be a part of helping you get your message out. 
So this has been a privilege and an honor. Thank you. You're welcome. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 